Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. I'm really excited about tonight's show. I'm really excited about the whole show that's coming up. Uh, and it's great to have Ken Burns back once again to talk about his uh, Benjamin Franklin film. But, you know, it, it's sort of interesting to end a dreary week on a positive note. And let's be honest, when this week that's just ended began, it was pretty rough out there. Think back, way back, all the way through the mists of time, back to, 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 to last Monday and how things were. I mean, we had just lost Taylor Hawkins, drummer for the Foo Fighters, only 50 years old. Joe Biden was catching hell for his speech in Warsaw because... He voiced his personal opinions that Vladimir Putin couldn't be allowed to stay in power. Yes, we've gone from four years of a president never getting in trouble for lying to a president getting in trouble for telling the truth. Uh, we saw Donald Trump somehow manage to lose seven and a half hours of phone records the exact time that the terrorist attack was waged on our capital. I mean, somewhere in hell, Nixon is like, God damn it, I caught hell for only 18 minutes. Ron DeSantis in Florida, signed the Don't Say Gay Law, which is even uglier than it sounds. And, of course, the week began with an Oscar ceremony that was supposed to be a joyful celebration for the, the deaf and disabled community. The first deaf male actor to win an Oscar, the first queer woman of color to win an Oscar, all shadowed, all overshadowed by uh, a stupid act of violence. And now, of course, you know, more people have heard about the slap than have heard about the war in Ukraine. As of now, I mean, as we come to you, uh, it's just been announced that Will Smith has resigned from the Academy. So take that. No more screeners for you. So after this dreary got off a week, it's kind of amazing to end it with so much positive news. Did you get a chance to, to take in the nice things that happened today? We just saw the greatest organized labor victory in America of the 21st century as Amazon workers in ultra-conservative Staten Island successfully formed a labor union. Pope Francis has apologized to indigenous people for the atrocities of residential schools. After Transgender Day of Visibility, U.S. citizens will now be able to select X as their gender on passport applications starting the 11th of April. Uh, this is great, and it's a bunch of new policies the White House is rolling out. The U.S. added 431,000 jobs in March. I mean, that's really a streak of very, very strong hiring. 431,000 jobs. It, it, the inflation is still high, but wow, the economy is very, very resilient. And then 
after, the morning after, 92% of House Republicans voted against capping insulin costs at $35 a month. Think about that. 92% of Republicans voted against capping the price of insulin at $35 a month. Why do non-millionaires keep getting suckered into voting for this party? Well, uh, the morning after that, they're on the House floor railing against a bill to legalize marijuana federally. And the House passed legislation on Friday morning, the end of this dreary week, to legalize cannabis nationwide and, just as importantly, to eliminate the long-standing criminal penalties for anybody who distributes it or possesses it. Now, the congressmen passed this bill, mostly along party lines, 220 to 204. Three Republicans joined the Democrats, and only uh, two Democrats didn't. The three Republicans who voted for the bill, let's give them praise, Brian Mast, Tom McClintock, and Matt Gates. You guys did the right thing. And Democratic Representatives Henry Cuellar of Texas and Chris Pappas of New Hampshire voted against it. Now, it's going to go to the Senate, where Chuck Schumer is working with his other Democrats to introduce their own marijuana legislation bill as soon as this spring. The House Democrats previously passed a bill to legalize cannabis way back in December 2020, but that didn't go anywhere in the Senate because the GOP was still controlling it at the time. This new bill is called the Marijuana Opportunity Reinvestment and Expungement Act, or MORE, which is... (laughs) (laughs) What David Crosby always says when you produce the marijuana, more. But what I love is this would clear cannabis-related convictions from people's records. And it would finally, formally, officially remove cannabis from the federal list of controlled substances. It would also put a federal tax on weed sales to fund programs that were aimed at helping communities harmed by the war on drugs policies that, of course, put all these harsh punishments for having cannabis in the first place. The sales tax would start at 5%, gradually increase to 8% over five years. We've seen in many states like Colorado, these laws work. These laws give you a lot of extra revenue. And most sane people agree it's past time for the federal government to catch up to the majority of U.S. states that have already decriminalized cannabis to at least some extent. Jamie Raskin, The great congressman from Maryland did try before the final passage to clarify that people can't be denied security clearances over cannabis due to 12 Democrats joining all but two Republicans in opposition. Um, And what I loved about the passage was the Democrats really tried to frame this as a way to undo the disproportionate impact of marijuana prohibition on racial minorities. You all already know. Black Americans are four times more likely than Caucasians to be arrested for cannabis possession, despite both races using the drug at pretty much the same rate, according to the ACLU. Congressman Barbara Lee said, make no mistake, yes, it is a racial justice bill. Really exciting. I mean, to me, it's very, very promising, even though, let's admit, there's no real clear path to Joe Biden's desk. Now, 37 states four territories, and D.C. all allow the use of cannabis for medical use. That's according to the National Conference on State Legislatures. About half of that number, 18 states, two territories, and the D.C. allow cannabis for non-medical use. I mean, friends, just think about how far we've come. 
I remember watching that commercial on Fox News because I watch Fox News because, you know, I'm a thinker. Uh, Remember the commercial where they said, you know, if you buy drugs, even pot, your money may go to fund terrorists. This wasn't that long ago. They were still pushing this line. And that one was really an eye opener for me because I don't know about you, but I grew up in America's public schools. Remember all the traditional fear mongering propaganda about weed? Remember all the all the stuff they would tell us when we were kids, the horror stories about all the evil things weed does to your brain? I I I, I can't recall any of it right right now, but but you get the idea. <laughs> they always told us growing up, weed makes you violent and lazy. Which never scared any kids I knew. In fact, I'm, I'm sorry, I think making violent people lazy is the most effective crime prevention plan possible. Think about it. I'm going to kill you, man, right after this burrito. And this wasn't that long ago. This is why so many kids have a hard time taking the drug war seriously. Because we're always changing the reasons. But the message stays the same. We always keep saying, drugs are bad, drugs are bad, drugs are bad. And that, my friends, is not the problem. The problem is not that drugs are bad. The problem is drugs are great. That's the problem. Addiction is bad. Overdosing is bad. Making really stupid choices when you're high is bad. And all you potheads who paid to see Eternals in the theater know what I'm talking about. It wasn't that long ago. They were saying if you buy pot, the money will go to terrorists. So clearly the message they're sending is grow your own. But, you know, <laughs> I always think about that, that of, of all the just say no, this is your brain on drugs, all the anti-weed propaganda. That one was always my favorite, the terrorist tie-in, because our government linking the war on drugs to the war on terror is actually rather ironic, because the the drug war as we know it, the drug war that we are still trying to dismantle began in 1873 in that bastion of morality, San Francisco. Now, way back then, Chinese immigrants were the group that everyone was allowed to hate. You know, every generation has one. I mean, for a long time, it was Muslims, and then it was undocumented immigrants. Now it appears to be trans children. But back in 1873, you were allowed to hate Chinese. And people didn't like the thought of good Christian white people going into those opium dens of the heathen Chinese. I mean, white people took opium too. But white people used to eat it, or they would shoot it up, you know, the wholesome ways. Uh, Chinese folks in the opium dens would smoke the opium. Uh, this is long before, of course, the Sackler family decided to get everybody hooked on pill form. But back in 1873 in San Francisco, because of the racism, they passed a law taxing importable, smokable, imported smokable opium. Now, think about that. It's noteworthy because besides the obvious racism, you know, they didn't tax drinkable, eatable shoot up a opium, just the kind you smoked. It was obviously racist, and it was the first time our government ever used taxes, not to raise money, like the founders intended, but to punish and control private behavior. And this began a long tradition of drug wars, of drug laws, that don't work. And what happened in 1873? Well, you know what happened. The well-regulated, law-abiding opium houses shut down, The Chinese underworld grew stronger, violence erupted, lives were disrupted, police and politicians were corrupted, America interrupted. (laughs) The drug war has been around so long, it feels like it's part of our heritage. But cannabis hemp, which the Congress is trying to 
destigmatize was a major American crop from the earliest colonial days. Did you know the U.S. Census of 1850 counted 8,000 hemp plantations? I'm going to repeat that because I think it's worth noting. The 1850 U.S. Census counted 8,000 cannabis hemp plantations. Growing weed was as American as apple pie. And everyone knew back then, if you smoked the flowery top part of the plant, you would want to eat a lot of apple pies. But no one in colonial America ever flipped out about cannabis. Back then, like now, the biggest drug problem was the same as the biggest drug problem now, alcohol. From colonial days till today. And every junkie I ever met started with a beer. So when the, our government finally made cannabis illegal, 85 years ago, in 1937, the American Medical Association officially protested because for hundreds of years, its medicinal and industrial uses for hemp were very well documented. You guys probably know, you, you know, Washington grew hemp at Mount Vernon. Thomas Jefferson grew it at Monticello. Thomas Jefferson actually helped to smuggle rare hemp seeds out of China. Nowadays, they'd go to jail for it in some states if we ever started locking up rich white guys. Benjamin Franklin we'll be talking about later with Ken Burns, Ben Franklin started a colonial paper mill that made paper from hemp fiber. I'm not suggesting Ben smoked any. I'm sure lots of sober guys fly kites during thunderstorms. My God, can you imagine that? All the founding fathers sitting around, taking their snuff and smoking, and suddenly a sopping wet Ben Franklin comes in. Guys, guys, guess what? I just proved that there's electricity in lightning, we're going to harness it and give it to the colonists for free. And in the back, you got John Adams and Hamilton going, no, we'll make them pay for it. But you know what? Since this is April now, it's worth mentioning that from the 1600s to the 1800s, cannabis hemp was used as a currency in our country. It was legal tender for over 200 years. In this country, you could pay your taxes in cannabis hemp. That, that's where you get the expression joint return. That's not, that's not true. I shouldn't say that. The, the whole point is, Cannabis, weed, marijuana, it's been in America for thousands of years, way longer than white people. But it's only been illegal for the past 85 years. So technically, what the House did today, what the Democrats did today to decriminalize it, is the true conservative point of view. I remember back in 96 when the voters of California tried to approve medical marijuana, and the Clinton White House could put the kibosh on it. And George W. Bush also opposed medical marijuana. And those were two presidents who were vague at best about their drug histories, but they had no problem locking up other people for the same behaviors, which I took it then as a sign that neither one of them really believed in the drug war. I mean, I'm not saying they're evil. I'm just saying it was part of why the drug war never made any sense to me growing up. It's like a thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle where the pieces don't fit. And it's never going to look like what they promised you on the box. Now, again, it's not looking like it's going to ever be able to clear the necessary 60 votes to advance in the Senate, legalizing marijuana. And Schumer might not have enough support within his own caucus. At least two Democrats who represent states damaged by the opioid epidemic, Gene Shaheen and Joe Boom Boom Manchin, have already said they're not down with this. But this marks the second time in less than two years the Democratic House passed legislation to decriminalize cannabis and to get rid of the old marijuana-related convictions and allow states to make their own decisions about whether they want to establish marijuana markets because that's good for capitalism. Democrats did promise a party-line bill in doing this. And again, it has little chance of getting the Republican support it will need to pass the Senate. We're still in the midst of this fight. 
I'm very encouraged by it because I, like many of you, have grown up in this drug war, this drug war that violates civil liberties, violates privacy rights, violates rights against search and seizure, this drug war that's led us to out-of-control crime and corrupted law enforcement, corrupted business and banking, and it's shown that the wealthy get away with what the poor can't. The drug war has made a mockery of any claim that we're a free country based on liberty. The war on drugs is and has always been a war on Americans. And yeah, it's been about race, but it's really about class. And the color that matters most is lack of green. And I've spent my whole life thinking, can we ever stop this drug war? Can we ever stop locking people up for a flower? But we can't because we as a nation are hooked. We're addicted. (laughs) We've been addicted to the drug war like it's Vicodin. We know the drug war doesn't work. We know the drug war is too expensive. We can't afford it. We know there's a million people in prison. And every year we're paying 40 grand a piece as taxpayers to keep these people in prison when they could be out working, paying taxes, contributing to the economy, raising children. But we can't quit this drug war. There's two types of people who keep repeating the same behaviors over and over again, always expecting a different outcome. You know who they are? Addicts and crazy people. I don't mean to be ableist. Just an expression. And I hope we're addicts because I don't want to believe our country is so insane we will keep the drug war going for another 85 years. And the good news is, if we are addicted, we can get treatment. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. The last time Ken Burns was with us was to discuss his excellent film about Muhammad Ali. Now he is premiering a new four-hour documentary about the $100 founding father, a man best known uh, for a kite experiment, perhaps, a man who was the greatest diplomat in history, a man who was an inventor, a man who owned slaves, a man who changed the world and made it better, a man who evolved, but maybe not fast enough. And it's a film about America amidst war and diplomacy, pandemics and vaccination, spirituality and science and shifting political landscapes, proving once again, Ken Burns makes films about how current events aren't current. What a pleasure to welcome Mr. Burns back to SiriusXM. 
Thank you so much. Well, you know, it's arguable that Muhammad Ali is the one of the greatest American personalities of the 20th century. Benjamin Franklin, to me, is undoubtedly, without question, the greatest personality of the 18th century. Uh, you or your astrologer friends might be interested to know that they're both born on the same day, January 17th, if you adjust uh, to the Gregorian calendar. Uh, he was born in 1706, died in 1790, and just is is the colossus that bestrides that extraordinary century. Yes, indeed. I mean, he's it, it, the almost the entire century. And I did know that about their birthdays. But what I found fascinating was last time you were here, when we discussed the Ali film, it was so contemporary that I mentioned to you, I wasn't used to seeing you use rock and roll music or, or soul music in your films. Now you've done a film about a man who never even lived long enough to be photographed. And I thought that's a peculiar kind of challenge, even for a Ken Burns to not have still photography for a subject. It is, you know, everything visually for us is calibrated, right? Sometimes you may have a subject that's all still photographs, like the Civil War, no footage, right? Uh, nothing in color, right? Uh, sometimes you have very little photographs because of the subject matter. Sometimes there's lots of painting. When you've got an, uh, an 18th century subject or an early 19th century subject, you just have to make do and figure out how to do it. So we rely on increasing the amount of live cinematography that we do, yes. uh, the print shops, the, the forges, the uh, dimly lit tatter, uh, taverns, the uh, tabletops, the chess sets, all of that stuff. We go to various places, London and, and Paris and, and, and Philadelphia, New England, film appropriate interiors and exteriors. Um, and so you increase that and find paintings and, and drawings and, and increase the number of maps and the graphic material and how you pull that graphic material out. So you're in there and you find his signature or you find the words in his essay uh, about something. So it's, it's a great challenge. You know, sometimes there's a, uh, John, there's a tyranny of choice when you've got, say, a, a war that's covered with millions of photographs and, and, and thousands and thousands of hours of footage. That, that can be as tyrannical as the absence of things as well. I, I agree. That's why it's always a joy with your films to appreciate the editing. And this one is especially creative. I, I also yeah, God, remember... Craig Mellish is the person who deserves the main credit for that. Um, uh, this is a collaborative meeting and, and uh, medium and my co-producer, David Schmidt, and the writer, Dayton Duncan, and a whole team of folks who found those images deserve so much credit particularly well, during COVID. I'll say, I mean, you mentioned Dayton Duncan, and this is a film about a man who did have a very long life that was very, very accomplished. Most of the things he is best known for happened after he turned 60, and it was a full life before then. I've always been curious, how do you go about crafting the narrative with your screenwriters? It's clearly the story you want to tell, but do you map out act by act, beat by beat, the story that you want to pull out from a life like this? So what we would do would give Dayton the broad, um, you know, charge to go and, and write a biography of Benjamin Franklin in two episodes. And we then would start uh, talking to scholars, thinking about what the emphasis was and then reaching out. And, and I would interview, in this case, uh, most of the people that we interviewed and then provide the selections from those interviews for Grist for Dayton's Mill. So he'll deliver something that the first episode, I believe, was five hours long. 
right? <laughs> and the second was, you know, or maybe it was four hours and the second one was three and a half. And I realized that the goalposts weren't right. So I changed the goalposts and we listened to it first as radio plays, what we call blind assemblies. Why make the editors put in pictures if it's going to be cut, right? So we listened to it as a radio play a couple of times, uh, two blind assemblies in this one. But after the first one, I had cut down I'd moved the goalposts and we and and with Dayton's astute sort of nimble rewriting of outro and intros, um, we were able to uh, do that. Then I cooked those things down in one pass to under two hours that gave the editor enough time to expand. And then we would cut those down a little bit. And the scholars were really helpful because we're dealing with, you know, very complicated and contradictory facts. Uh, We're not. Um, hiding his light under a barrel, but we're not shielding him from the criticism that he would deserve for the flaws that you mentioned. So how we interpret, say, the dispossession, the systematic dispossession of native lands that he's part of at the same time, he's sort of romantically aligned with uh, native people and and is inspired by the Haudenosaunee, the Iroquois Confederation's idea of of putting it together. That's where the join or die, the Albany plan of union, the segmented snake uh, comes from. It's all inspired by Native Americans. Right. So there's, 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 there's sort of the calibration of that give and take, the yes and no, the the contradictions and the strength is is where it's made. And then, and then of course, as you suggested before, what you show. Yes. I kept thinking about Peter Jackson cutting 18 hours of a Beatles documentary down to eight. And for Ben Franklin's entire life, I don't know how you brought this in under 10. It's just, it's, it, and it moves so well. There's, there's so much depth to it. And I, I uh, before we get to Mr. Franklin, I, I want to ask one more question about your process, because I always think about all the actors you cast for your historic voices. I think Samuel Jackson as Jack Johnson, Meryl Streep as Eleanor Roosevelt. How did you come to cast uh, our friend Mandy Patinkin as the voice well, of Ben Franklin? Well, first of all, it's two two hours in length. Uh, the yes, Franklin it is. Piece. It's very and, tight. And, and it's... Um, I was sitting, I shouldn't have been, I shouldn't admit this. I was watching Homeland, of which I was a fan of several years ago with my then, you know, eight or nine-year-old youngest uh, daughter, uh, Willa. And I was covering their eyes at the parts they shouldn't see, thinking, what a bad dad, and trying to explain to them, you know, statecraft and spycraft and Russian, U.S., Afghan relations, all of this stuff, when I suddenly went, Oh, Mandy should be the voice of 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 Franklin. This is three, four years ago, and um, and I was so inspired. And in COVID, we we did it. Uh, he said yes, and we had this remote session. He was phenomenal. I've worked with Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks and Gregory Peck and Paul Newman and lots of great great actors. And um, he was just unique in the way he approached it. And then he, you know, it was a day session. And then he just, we, you know, a couple of years later sent him the thing or a year and a half later sent it. And he was stunned. He said of the, I'm, I, this is one of the three things I'm proudest of, you know, along with uh, Sunday in the park with George and Princess Bride and this. I said, wow. what about Saul Berenson from Homeland? That was what inspired me. He goes, yeah, but <laughs> I like this. I don't think he was prepared for just how contemporary it was and how to the moment it was in the midst yeah of our political divisions. Well, you mentioned, I mean, the contradictions of the man, and that's really what the film is about. This is someone who was beloved by the world, but completely estranged from members of his family who later spoke out about slavery, but owned people, enslaved people, who who denounced the slaughter of natives, but also was a fan of the expansion into indigenous lands. And of course, a Puritan 
who became a figure in the Enlightenment. I, I certainly understand why you'd want to tackle it. Uh, you, you said that you don't make movies about things you don't know about. And, um, and I respect that. I'm curious, what did you know about Ben Franklin and slavery? I- you, you know, it's so interesting. I, I don't remember um, what I did. I mean, I suppose that I, th- I, st- I thought even in my advanced years that the lightning had to hit the kite and it doesn't. That's the school, <laughs> what we inherited from the school thing. I, I did not know that he enslaved people. That that struck me. And, and let's let's be straight about it. We, we, we sort of quite correctly excoriate the Southern planters for their hundreds of slaves, but having one or a hundred it's all, it's all bad, right? It's like murder. You kill one yeah. person, you kill a hundred people. The hundred people gets the ink, but, but it's, you know, it's still murder, right? And it's still enslavement. And that's a horrible thing. I just was drawn, you know, I don't want to tell you what I already know. I'd rather share with you the process of discovery. I think we even talked about this with Ali. And yeah. so you, you just, you come with a set of presumptions and they're blown away. And, and I think, the redundancy of the idea of complicated human being. There's none of us that aren't complicated. And and our heroes are larger than life people, just like the Greek heroes always had their flaws. And the lessons are that you didn't throw one out because they weren't perfect. Nobody's perfect. Exactly. What you did is you tried to figure out some way to tolerate the contradictions and to proceed forward. His, obviously his net contribution is just beyond that, but it's really important to understand how he could go from a Puritan upbringing to this Quaker, much more tolerant um, ability to absorb the, the enlightenment and the, and the kind of presumed deism that came with that, to become a man of science, to say, to, to, you know, to understand the beautiful poetry in, in Thomas Jefferson's declaration, but say, it's not, we hold these truths to be sacred. No, no, no. We hold them true to be self-evident. He's the editor. He's, he's on the committee and, and, you know, he, he changes sacred uh, to self-evident. That's a wonderful, wonderful yeah. change. It's a, it's, it's an enlightenment change. And even though Jefferson is distilling a century of enlightenment thinking into that second sentence of the declaration, which is one of the greatest sentences ever written, um, He's uh, he needed a little help, and 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 Franklin, the printer, the editor, was an astute uh, changer of that. So there's all that stuff that we wanted to to go for, and 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 it all has to be there. I mean, in, with the study of any great man, from FDR to Dr. King, we have to take in the sins. In this case, he published anti-slavery propaganda, but wouldn't put his name on it. Uh, he he was also ahead of its time when it came to demonizing a despised immigrant class. It happened to be Germans in his generation, but he as go you figure out, he saw the Germans as swarthy. He yeah. he said he wanted he wanted the lovely white and red, meaning native peoples, which is that that kind of beginning of that American romance with the native people. But by the way, we're taking everything you have yeah. and we're corralling you into different places. And if you get in the way, we will kill you. Um, but he sees the Germans, I think Adolf Hitler, I've just finished a film that'll be out in the fall on the U.S. and the Holocaust. And, you know, the whole thing is the racial purity of the exactly. Germans and the northern uh, Europeans, the Scandinavians and the Brits and, and the Irish, as opposed to everybody else who's swarthy or 
racially inferior. So to have the Germans be, uh, you know, racially inferior at that moment is just, it's a stunner, but it begins to tell you about the folly and the, and the biological non-existence of race. It just just doesn't happen. Right. Yeah. And so Frank Franklin's there at the beginning. And I I do want to make it clear as I've done with you before, John, is that we don't go in trying to score contemporary points. It's hard enough to tell the story as you imply to find the images, to, to wrestle and boil it down into two, two hours that will make you uh, feel something about this person and about the era. We just know that if you do a good job of that, when you come out, it will be talking as if it is today's headlines. And I've never made a film that wasn't, you know, you know, William Faulkner said history is not was, but is. And so if you, I think if you do history well, it, it is like the front pages of everything. We've got inoculation arguments, you know, we've yes. got, you know, religious right and and sort of the progressive uh, ideas. You've got misinformation and social media. I mean, my first interview, some reporter said, boy, what, what do you think Franklin would think of the social media? And I went, he was it. He didn't know exactly yes. what this was. He was a printer. He was a publisher. He was a newspaper owner. He was a, you know, a, a information distributor. And he was a postmaster. He printed money. I mean, he, he printed the acts of government he had it coming and going he was twitter and google and yes. um and facebook and apple all in one sort of person i mean poor richard's almanac was creating the tight tweet all the aphorisms he's so far early to better early to rise fish and yeah. visitors stink after three days the he, proudest he this... monarch on the biggest throne is still has to sit on his own arse <laughs> i mean hailed as a technology giant in his own life in many ways he was like billionaires sending themselves into space today. And what, what I took from it was this publisher, he, he rose to prominence and wealth as a publisher with extraordinary editorial power. He was in many ways Rupert Murdoch, Boris Johnson and Charles Foster Kane rolled into one. Everybody. And, and, and also, say, the New York Times with the self-imposed desire to just get it right every single time and be the best uh, exam, you know, the paper of record in that way. I mean, he's, it's extraordinary. He's trying to improve himself. He's its inventor, but the greatest invention as several of the historians and our scholars in our film say is that is himself, right? Here's this kid who has two years of schooling. And as HW Brands says in the film, he said, he didn't know what he didn't have to know. So he decided he had to know everything, which is a yes. perfect way to understand what an autodidact is, having not gone to school and you realize very quickly, it's not what you have to learn, it's what you don't have to learn, right? Yeah. He didn't know that and so he learned everything. And so he's this polymath and he's got a sense of humor. He's winking at us, he's available, he's accessible. And I think it just proves you know, the biblical uh, thing that from Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. Human nature doesn't change. And so if you can bring back as close to what Benjamin Franklin was to this present moment, it's like he's in this moment. And yes. the things that he's addressing with regard to race, with regard to immigration, with regard to medicine and inoculation, with regard to democracy, with regard to diplomacy, they're all still here and they will always be here. And there's no way that it can't be political, right down to you mentioning it was hemp rope. 
that was used in the famed kite experiment, which we've always been sold a version of. It's, it's so lovely the way you unpack it. What I had never thought of before with the kite experiment you mentioned, which is usually the first way most kids learn about him in school, was that the significance that it was an American colonist who yeah, yeah. proved that the atmosphere From, had lightning, had, had, as, the atmosphere had electricity in it. And and Joyce Chaplin says to him, you know, says once he'd gotten some fame, they said, and this guy from from, you know, North America, from Philadelphia, wherever the hell that is, because that was like saying Timbuktu. Right. It was like nowhere. No one knew anybody from there. And here was the most famous guy. I think what we miss an opportunity in education, and I hope the film, which because I'm with PBS, we always go into the schools and make sure there's good materials. It's not just, you know, the lightning doesn't have to strike. There just has to be the presence of electricity in the air. That's what happens. That's the thing. He proved it over and over again. He had, he had done the kite experiment because he wasn't able to get to a high place where he had wanted to conduct uh, the experiment at the top of Christ Church because its steeple wasn't finished. And But others in Europe were, were, were duplicating this. I think the key thing is that when you say, with regard to electricity, and most all of us are complete novices, if I say to you, positive and negative, charge, battery, and conductor. We all know what we're talking about. These are all phrases that Benjamin Franklin borrowed from other things and brought them to use. And they are still here with us today, you know? And so just like Isaac Newton a century earlier, this is major stuff. He's the most famous American on earth, deservedly so. Had there been Nobel Prizes, he would have gotten one. Well, in, in, our, in our final moment, you know, there's so many stories to unpack here. His tortured relationship with his son, who was a loyalist to the crown, his his almost farcical good cop, bad cop trip to France with John Adams. But I, I was struck by... On Franklin's first 12-week voyage at sea, back to the States, he wrote this plan for his future conduct. Uh, His four basic rules, as you outlined, be extremely frugal, endeavor to speak the truth in every instance, apply myself industriously, industriously to whatever business I take, and speak ill of no man whatever. I'm very curious, after all the exhaustive research you did, did Franklin achieve his basic rules for himself? Did he live up to them? No, as none of us can, but he tried harder than anybody I've ever met to do that. And that's the key thing. You know, this is the greatest diplomat in American history. Know him, know us, know U.S., not just us, but the U.S. There's just, he's not there. He is on the level and alone with George Washington. When George, when Cornwallis surrenders to Washington at Yorktown, it's because he's standing next to several thousand French soldiers. Thank you, Benjamin Franklin. His American soldiers, several thousand, are equipped with ammunition and uniforms and and guns. Thank you very much, Dr. Franklin. And and by the way, Cornwallis can't escape because there's a French fleet out in the harbor. Thank you very much. These are all Franklin's doing. Washington hadn't won battles. It had been stalemates. He knew he couldn't lose a battle, but the one he wins is the most important battle of all. And all of that is due, in fact, to Dr. Franklin's uh, efforts there. I mean, he's he's the most spectacular. He's the oldest of the founding fathers. His son is older than Thomas Jefferson. This right. is this is somebody that we have to get to know. And the last point I would make, John, would be he's on the $100 bill. That's where you started. And that's because he has been a symbol to sort of libertarians and do-for-yourselfers and lifting yourself up by your bootstraps for literally generations after generations after generations. But the interesting thing is that this man never 
untethered himself from civic responsibility, from right. civil discourse, and he never held a single patent on any of his stuff. That's right. So he had made himself rich, but then he understood that to give back, that, that yes, there's American freedom, what I want. And that may be in tension with what we need, our collective freedom. But this man coming from what would be called the Commonwealth of, of Pennsylvania, not the state, but the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, as is Massachusetts and, and Virginia and later Kentucky, the Commonwealth is equally important. And what happens is you have only half of a $100 bill if you think it's just the former. You exactly. need to you need to pay it back, and this is Benjamin Franklin's great gift to us. He left his fortune to a group in um, in in Boston to educate young kids, and in Philadelphia. And I had the pleasure of speaking to these kids, most of them immigrants or first generation uh, kids, who who were suddenly enlivened by the fact that I could connect them back to the guy who gave the Franklin Institute its name. But I was sobbing because this was the future that Benjamin Franklin envisioned of a strong middle class joined together, not by race, not by religion, not by ethnicity, not by customs, but by a belief in hard work and working together. That's that's his genius. The inventor of the lightning rod, and he gave it away at <laughs> the most common term in politics. Um, the film is Benjamin Franklin, directed and executive produced by Ken Burns. It premieres on PBS April 4th and 5th of this year. You can also see it on PBS.com. It is worth every minute. I could talk about this film for hours. Uh, Mr. Burns, it's always a pleasure to see you, and I can't wait for your next film about the U.S. and the Holocaust. Thank you for being a great storyteller at a time when they are needed. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure to be with you again. Good to see you. Take care. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. In an interview with the conservative news outlet Real America's Voice, Trump urged Vladimir Putin to release political dirt he believes implicates President Biden's son Hunter in corrupt dealings with Russian political officials. As long as Putin is not a fan of our country, Trump added, I think he should release it. You won't get the answer from Ukraine. I think Putin now would be willing to probably give that answer. Trump was referencing his failed effort to extort Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky into wading into the 2020 election. An act of such obvious state corruption had earned Trump his second impeachment trial. So writes our next guest, the great Max Burns. We're always thrilled when Max can join us to class the place up. He is a Public Relations Society of America award-winning Democratic strategist and great columnist. And he regularly appears in a wide array of top-tier national and international news outlets, including the Daily Beast and NBC News. His new piece in The Hill is Vladimir Putin's Art of the Deal. And as always, he nails it. Max Welcome back on our night of many Burnses. You and Ken, how are you, sir? Thanks for having me. I, I think one of those is a bit more of a draw, but uh, I'm glad to be here. <laughs> well, have you made a film about Ben Franklin? Because we could talk about that, too. Um, I, I, I love this piece that you wrote uh, about Trump's desire for vengeance against Zelensky, against Biden, against the country that threw him out of office, and how you say he has an eager audience in the Kremlin, Putin is eager to destabilize America's already fractious political landscape, and Trump is happy to help amplify Russia's authoritarian agenda as long as it hurts Democrats. Uh, I want to say that I'm not shocked anymore by the things Trump does, but this one, 
this one, while Putin is busy slaughtering civilians and killing children, I, I didn't see it coming. Yeah, this just reminds me of when I was in high school and I was really into the show 24, which the big conceit was always that the president was evil and working for the bad guys. But, you know, we didn't really see that in America for real until Donald Trump. And now he's he's out here plainly asking the Russians again to help interfere in America's domestic politics and giving sort of play by play advice to our adversary on how to most effectively hurt the country. It, it's, it's baffling that this is a, a man who was not that long ago the president of the United States of America. Yeah. And, and you know, right now, I guess Russian state TV is taking a break from calling Tucker Carlson the greatest guy in the world. We talked about earlier in the week, Russian broadcaster uh, Evgeny Popov was saying that Russians have to call for regime change in America, which I thought, Okay, you're punching back at Biden. That's fair. But then said Russians have to help our partner Trump become president as soon as possible. I, 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 I guess what I'm surprised most by is that Donald Trump could read the room this badly and still be this dumb, Max. And it's just that he's that easy to manipulate. I mean, this is the core of Putin's art of the deal is getting something for nothing. It cost Vladimir Putin nothing to tell his state-run media to put up a, a segment about how great Donald Trump is. But what he gets in return is Donald Trump, a former American president, the leader of the Republican Party, uh, actively every day spewing Kremlin propaganda, delegitimizing the democratic process, reducing Americans' faith in government, in democracy, in America. And that is an incredibly valuable thing. I mean. Imagine if, if if a Russian premier during the Cold War would have been able to co-opt Lyndon Johnson into pushing <laughs> pro-Soviet propaganda. I, know. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredibly dangerous. It's 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 madness. And I get that, as you put it, that Putin's art of the deal is offering something meaningless, this televised praise for Donald Trump in Russia in exchange for, as you put it, the loud and public complicity of a former president in advancing anti-American propaganda. Um, I, I get that Donald Trump is, you know, parroting these debunked conspiracy theories about Hunter Biden's Ukrainian connection. But I, I'm curious, uh, I, I get that the Hunter Biden stuff rallies the troops back home. They're not going to offer to do anything legislatively that's going to help the life of these white conservative people, but they'll get them mad about Hunter Biden. But what does that give Russia? How does talk about Hunter Biden and Ukrainian deals, how does that help Vladimir Putin? So if you remember the last time uh, Donald Trump asked for help from Russia in 2016 uh, in hacking Hillary Clinton's emails, they were more than happy to help. Uh, that single act alone that created so much political uh, dissension and political division in the country and gave Trump that pathway to win uh, resulted in four years of weak American government and weak American leadership that can directly point us to where we are in Ukraine right now. Russia benefits when we are weak and divided and fighting amongst ourselves. And one of the only saving graces of the Cold War was that it proved really hard to convince American government officials to turn coat on their own government. It was very exceptionally rare. Here's Donald Trump is willing to do that essentially for free, just for the exposure, for the thrill of it. 
and for a chance, I believe, to get back at Vladimir Zelensky for hanging him out to dry and getting him impeached. You know, it's a really good point. I mean, we have to go back and remember, and a lot of us tried to block it out, what was actually going on with that impeachment. He was withholding the arms that had been approved for Ukraine to blackmail Zelensky into lying to help him cheat in the 2020 election. And he it's so important to remember, Vladimir Zelensky had agreed to announce an investigation of Joe Biden on American CNN. There was, no one cared about the investigation. Trump didn't care about the investigation. There wasn't going to be a real investigation. Trump just was forcing Zelensky to go on American TV and announce the investigation. That's all Trump wanted, was to be able to say they're doing this investigation and smear Biden that way. And as soon as the whistleblower story broke, and I wish people remembered this better, I talk about it all the time, as soon as the whistleblower story broke, Vladimir Zelensky canceled his appearance on American CNN. And whoever heard of a foreign president going on American TV to announce an internal investigation? The whole thing stinks like Chris Christie's hamper. But it's just incredible to think about the grudge that Trump must still bear Zelensky. I'm just kind of shocked, though, Max, because Donald Trump was characteristically crude and vulgar and stupid in praising Vladimir Putin after the invasion began. Then he seemed to have sort of read the room a little bit came out and said that the invasion was bad, uh, never said he was wrong for praising Putin, just said Putin changed. Somehow he changed. Never I was mistaken to trust him, just he changed somehow. And now it seems like he's over that, and he's back to praising Putin again, and literally, literally asking Putin to help him to take a break from civilian slaughter to help him again cheat in the new election. Yeah, this should surprise nobody. I mean, Donald Trump's lessons learned are like grains of sand in the wind. I mean, we lived through this. We saw Donald Trump change his mind on COVID over a dozen times in the first True. few months. He he follows impulse and he follows revenge. We know that. And what Vladimir Putin has done is set up a very tempting offer for him of this glowing press in Russia that that Donald Trump is aware of. He talks about it to people at Mar-a-Lago. We've heard from multiple reporters. This is something he is aware of that he sees this almost as sticking a thumb in the eye of the Democrats and making their job harder. And this is really a guy rooting for us to fail in a way where failure would mean dead Americans. I mean, it's, it's very dangerous. And the fact that you have heard nothing from the Republican Party in condemning this latest round, not a peep, shows you that they also understand that this is where the party is. Yeah, but I mean, Max, haters gonna hate. Is it the fault of the Republican Party for not condemning him? Or is it the fault of the news media for not asking the Republican Party to give a comment on it? Because, I mean, that's it, right? Every every member of the GOP who is running for any office in this big election year should have to come down on one side or another about Donald Trump's never-ending allegiance to Vladimir Putin. Yeah, and you point out just how nuts it is. It's like saying when you do something wrong, do you think about whether what you did was wrong or do you think, well, the, the media must have made me do that? I mean, these are views that Republicans have proudly shared. They've stood by Donald Trump. They've minimized Vladimir Putin for years. They mocked the impeachment trial of Ukraine as being a, a big liberal hoax, which we now know was Vladimir Zelensky desperately trying to protect his country from amassing of forces that became a a bloody and deadly war. Uh, None of this was a hoax. None of this was manufactured by the media. 
And Democrats need to hold Republicans' feet to the fire on explaining their words from, in some cases, just a few months ago. Yeah, but will they? That's the question. I mean, the Republicans are in this tricky spot, as they always are. It seems like they really, really don't want Trump, but they really, really want Trump's fans. And so that's the line they've got to walk, isn't it? I mean, every Republican has to decide whether they're going to, um, (laughs) I guess, support what Trump said or uh, condemn what Trump said or just find artful ways to avoid it. But I think the Democratic Party and the media are making it real easy for them to dodge this. They are. I mean, there's no accountability for the fact that what a lot of these Republicans really want is Trump's money and his access to party money. Uh, It is very underreported how much as a percentage of the Republican National Committee's funding and fundraising every quarter comes from Donald Trump appeals from the Trump campaign apparatus. He could starve the party out in less than a year if he decided to cut off funding. So that's a a very strong incentive for them to play ball, not stick their head out too high, march in line, be quiet, obey this guy. He may be an idiot, but he's got the money to get us reelected. And that's going to lead to even more disaster. It's going to be an entire Republican Party of Madison Cawthorns at this rate. And they'll get away with it, just like Madison Cawthorn, because they're not going to have their feet held to the fire. Max, I do have to ask you, you know, in a time when Donald Trump can bring 15 boxes of classified national security secrets, illegally take them from the White House and bring them down to his little golf club in Florida, and nobody cares. Nobody cares. No one makes a thing out of it. After all the Hillary Clinton destroying emails, blah, blah, blah. Donald Trump literally does everything he accused Hillary Clinton of doing, and no one cares. Should we be really shocked that there's seven and a half hours of phone logs that have just been deliberately scrubbed? Yeah, I think it's important to still be shocked. I mean, as as routine as Donald Trump's abuses of power and authoritarian excesses start to feel to us, it is essential to still be shocked by this. This is a staggering cover-up and a violation of the Presidential Records Act. Uh, There are individuals who are responsible for these records who are not Trump appointees, they're civil servants, who will be able to tell us what was in, in those gaps, why they were removed, who told them to remove them. It's on the January 6th committee to call those witnesses in a prime time hearing and really make this into a national issue. We cannot expect the American people to treat this as a crisis if our own elected leaders do not seem to be treating it as a primetime crisis. But Max, they're, they're, they're not putting testimony on TV. We haven't seen any of that. And as we learned in the impeachment, you can blow off a congressional subpoena much easier than one can blow off jury duty. Yeah, it's, it's remarkable. And as we remember from all those great untelevised hearings of history, I, really the only way people attach any emotional connection to the mafia hearings, the Benghazi hearings, the 9-11 hearings, was because they were primetime television. They made you focus on the issue as a crisis. And it wasn't surprising that when those were treated as primetime issues, Americans paid attention and those informed their voting patterns the next cycle. We're not doing that for reasons that are still not clear to me because the clock is running out. I mean, when Republicans take the House... This committee is done. So anything they need to do needs to be done very quickly. 
But what can they do, Max? At this point, is the January 6th committee just a way for the Democratic Party to keep their own outrage machine going? Not that we shouldn't be outraged about January 6th, but it just seems so toothless. The more secrets they uncover, the more corruption, the more lies. I mean, Mark Meadows gave them binders full of smoking guns. And nothing's going to stick. There's going to be no accountability. I mean, what are they going to do? Refer it over to Merrick Garland and hope something happens? I mean, at this point, I, I, I feel like this committee is just existing to keep us angry and on edge and showing up to vote in November. I don't know what else they can hope to achieve. And even to some extent, that is ineffective because to have outrage, you need to have sort of broad public awareness of what's happening. These hearings are unfolding behind closed doors. There was a multi-hour hearing with Jared Kushner just this week that yeah, nobody nobody nothing. heard a word about and will nothing. not hear about again. And no. But as you say, the bigger point is the Department of Justice. I mean, you look at Steve Bannon, he was indicted in November of last year uh, and is not going on trial until July, July of this year. Exactly. And at this rate, I mean, these cases may well be being handled by a Republican Department of Justice in 2024 Exactly. And we cannot have any expectation that that will result in fair anything. So it's Iran-Contra all over again. They're guilty. They broke laws. We all know it. It's out in the open. They don't care that we know. And there's nothing we can do about it. Unless the Department of Justice gets it together and really makes this a priority. They allowed Steve Bannon's case to, to jerk the Department of Justice around for almost a year. I think they learned some tough lessons that they were not prosecuting aggressively enough, that they were allowing too much opportunity for uh, recesses, for extensions, and that they that Steve Bannon really used that to, to all that time to promote misinformation and to delegitimize this process. And you move quickly or not at all. Yeah, then let me ask you one last question, Mr. Burns, and I thank you for joining us on a Friday night. Um, I'm really tired of defending Merrick Garland. I'm really tired of telling people slow and steady wins the race. Let's wait and see. He had no leaks on Timothy McVeigh. He had no leaks on the Unabomber and he got convictions in all cases. I've gone through the talking points. Um, I, I think a lot of people have just lost faith in this. Let me ask you, sir, what are you optimistic about in terms of justice being served? Well, I think Merrick Garland has been very good at building solid cases around January 6th. We, at first, there were complaints that he wasn't indicting enough high-level people. Uh, and then we saw a couple weeks ago that there was a slew of indictments against Proud Boys leaders, funders, organizers, and now evidence that they're going to start looking more at people who provided organizational support, people who include Charlie Kirk, Ginny Thomas, uh, a lot of these shadowy right-wing sort of super PAC groups that were funding buses of people to come on January 6th. My hope is that those cases will start to turn more people to talking. But, but like we've said, I mean, there's a very limited amount of time to do this. And it has to be done right, because one mistake is all it will take to demolish the credibility of this effort. And on that note, Max, what's the best way for our listeners to follow you and keep up with your work? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at the Max Burns or at NBC News or at the Daily Beast. This new piece is great. Everyone needs to read it in the Hill. Vladimir Putin's Art of the Deal. Man, it is enraging, but it's also inspiring. And I thank you for all the work you do, sir. Thanks for joining us on a Friday. Thanks for having me.